I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. All right. Well, we are going to start in five minutes, just waiting to connect with uh, with Braxton Hunter. Um, just real quick, if I can just uh, give people a heads up, um, if you're not familiar with Braxton Hunter, he is the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Um, he is also a Christian apologist and evangelist. And uh, as soon as we get connected, um, I'm sure he will give us a little more background as to uh, who he is, what he does how you could um, um, reach uh, his material. He's got books, and maybe he can talk a little bit about that as well. So we're just um, waiting to get connected uh, there. Uh, The topic of this, um, I guess this interview is going to be on the issue of apologetics. Why apologetics? Why do we do apologetics? Um, And um, hopefully we can get into some some details as to um, how we should answer that question. Why does the church need... Uh, Christian apologetics. Those who are seasoned in uh, apologetical studies, this obviously will be an easy um, uh, question to answer, but um, um, hopefully we can get into some other broader topics that are related that um, you guys might find interesting as well. So let me see um, uh, if we can connect in just a few moments here, but we will be officially starting at 5 p.m. Eastern time. All right. All right. Let's see what we got here. I am the control center. So let me see here. Uh, Let's see here. All right. I hope you guys find this beneficial. Um, It's a beauty of technology, right? You can connect with people and do things like that. And hopefully it's a blessing to those who, uh, uh, who watch. Um, Just uh, while we're waiting, uh, for Braxton to connect. Um, okay, there we go. Let's see here. Boom. 
Boom, let's see. He's trying to connect, let's see here. All right. Let's see here. Okay, let's see. There we go. Hey, hey. There he is. All right, man. Uh, I'm checking to see real. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You sound good. Yeah, I'm checking to see if my mic and camera. Okay, I see the camera is right. Okay. Uh, settings. Here we go. Uh, yep. Looks good. And I am just grabbing a couple of PowerPoints real quick in case it's helpful. Okay, sure. so the audio sounds okay? Yeah, you sound fine. Um, how do I sound to you? I'm okay? Yeah, you sound good. All right, good. I appreciate um, this opportunity, brother. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. It's really hard to, um, to actually get people on. <laughs> hey, here's really? the thing, funny. As, as a Calvinist, it's almost impossible for me to get Calvinists on. <laughs> and all really? non-reformed folks, they tend to be the first, hey, I'll do one, you know. So it's been difficult for me to, to, to get in touch with, with some of uh, some other folks that I've been trying to, uh, to do interviews with. But we've had a couple of good ones. Um, we did have a really, I did moderate a, a very interesting discussion between um, Dr. Kirk McGregor and Matt Slick over the topic of Molinism and Calvinism. Really? Really interesting, yeah. Wow. Well, I saw I was trying to poke around and, and kind of uh, creep your your social media to see what I could find. And um, do you have like a podcast? Um, I do a podcast with my pastor and worship leader called The Biblical World Brew, where we talk about coffee and, of course, Christian <laughs> theology. And uh, sometimes we, we might touch on something related to apologetics. But I... Um, Personally, I teach middle school, high school, and I teach apologetics, and I am an apologist in other contexts, too. So I speak in different venues, and I write for um, the Historical Bible Society. Um, every now and then, I help out with CARM. Um, so I'm heavily involved in apologetics when it's not you know, necessarily connected to my other jobs. Well, hold on just a second, because I just realized you don't have good light on me. So I'm going to open up this or open up the blinds over here. I'll be right back. Sure, sure. Okay, let's see. Is that too washed out, or is that good? It's it's good. You're the the the, the light is reflecting off your head. It's good. <laughs> that's, that's that's what happens when you're. It gives you a more angelic hue. You got the the glowing thing going on. <laughs> All right. Well, cool, man. Well, I was just listening to your discussion with Pine Creek. Um, yes. I and you may have had more than one of those. Um, I don't know. I I have um, I, re, ever since the Matt Dillahunty debate. I started, or actually, while I was preparing for the Matt Dillahunty debate, I started looking at this whole subculture that I had been unaware of with all these debates going on. Like you got Pine Creek, and then you've got modern day debates that has a lot of guys. And uh, I was completely unaware. It's like underground rap battles happening that I didn't know anything about. And uh, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> well, I had gotten out of apologetics for a while. And so, um, sure. I mean, still teaching it and still doing it. But in terms of like what was going on, you know, online, I, I'd gotten more into uh, Old Testament and New Testament studies because I felt like I had forsaken a healthy study of scripture for apologetics. Sure. And got really convicted about that. And so I spent three years doing that and had gotten away from it. When I come back, it's like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff going on with people that, you know, don't have any kind of credentials, but they're arguing online. And it's kind of cool because they go places with the discussion that, you know, wouldn't have sure. happened 10 years ago. So I'm really interested. But anyway, so I knew who Pine Creek was because I've been watching some of Mike Winger's discussions with Pine Creek. And so when I typed your name in and I saw that there was one with him, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And I thought you were doing a real good job there. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was my first interaction with, um, I forgot his name, uh, uh, the guy something? who does the interviews. What was that? Doug, right? Doug. Yeah. Doug. Yeah. He was, he was very respectful. We had a good uh, discussion before that. Um, and so um, I think he actually got in contact with me because there was a, a kind of a video that went a little viral where this guy who claimed to be a pastor, um, and then he kind of left. Uh, that position claiming that everything in the Bible was false, like nothing in the Bible was true. And so I made a, a brief um, um, video response and that kind of got a couple people's attention. And then he invited me on to kind of talk about kind of why do I believe what I believe? So it was a very respectful conversation. And, uh, you know, it was, um, I thought, I thought it went well, you know, yeah. definitely a good opportunity to watch yourself. I'm sure after you have um, debated uh, Matt Dillahunty, I know you're probably done with that stuff for now since the prep time. <laughs> is is kind of uh you know a lot of repetition but i'm sure if you ever you know catch a moment there are opportunities to learn uh from possible mistakes or maybe different ways that you might have oh, yeah, approached sure. an issue yeah i've watched the debate the dylan hunty debate now uh multiple times okay partly because what's happening is in that debate because matt dylan is so big right um, people are making videos from the debate, you know, like cutting out sections and sure. putting together their own video. So I keep having to go back to the debate to see, well, what was the context with that? What was going right. on there? But uh, so I've watched it a bunch and I've done about six interviews with other podcasts, including two at the at the conference the debate was sure. opening yeah. for. And so, but I, I am pretty well, yeah, uh, I don't want to hear his voice for a while. And it's not, <laughs> it's not because of anything to do with him. It's just I've heard his voice from right. my wife's lately. Well, well, let me tell you, I, um, as a Calvinist and a hardcore presuppositionalist, I thought you did very well, well much better you. than his position. So, and I know a lot of my presuppositionalist uh, buddies would probably, you know, probably flip over in their chairs for me saying that. But um, I, I'm pretty much in line with what you've said in a different context where you make reference sometimes to um, it's better, you know, my doing apologetics is better than you not doing it. Can people talk about it? but it's actually better that you're out there doing it. So um, whether you're a classicalist or a presuppositionalist, you know, um, at least you're out there having those discussions and, and those things need to be happening. So um, I appreciate it, even if it was from that different perspective. Yeah, you know, I, and I don't, I don't mean to suck the air out of the room because I know you probably have somewhere you want to go with this discussion, but um, sure. I, uh, I, I have another book that was actually my dissertation uh, okay. I turned into a book called Evangelistic Apologetics. And in that book and in my dissertation, in the dissertation, I was looking at um, apologetics and evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention's denominationally endorsed personal evangelism programs. And what I saw, what, what I wanted to do is take each of the five major general divisions of apologetic approaches 
and see how see if there's anything with them that Southern Baptist doctrinally couldn't couldn't do or couldn't affirm, and then how people with varying doctrinal perspectives could use these. So I actually argued for Calvinists to use presuppositionalism um, in in their personal evangelism because I'd re even though I'm not a presuppositionalist, I don't have anything really substantive against presuppositionalism. Sure. And if that gets a Calvinist having worldview discussions with unbelievers, I'm all for it. So yeah. I think you and I are probably, from what I know of you in the little time I've, I've been aware of you, um, it sounds like we're kind of on similar footing insofar as though you're a Calvinist presuppositionalist and I am a non-Calvinist uh, uh, classical apologist. Sure. I, I see value in multiple methods depending right, on Right, right. And I think, too, that our methods uh, should be consistent with our theology. And just because we might have a difference in our theology doesn't mean I would discourage you from acting on your convictions that your theology is correct and then use a method that actually is consistent with that. Right. So right. all the power to you. So, um, but yeah, so um, this is great. I'm, I'm actually very happy that you're here, especially um, after having uh, that debate with Matt Dillahunty. Um, if people aren't familiar with, uh, with who he is, um, very well-known um, internet atheist. Um, and uh, he hosts the um, Atheist Experience um and so people are interested in that they can check it out but i think you did an excellent job and it just reminded me of the importance of just um reminding people of why doing apologetics is important which is which is what i want to start off with asking you kind of that basic question and then um we can kind of shoot off into other areas now i would imagine that people who watch this will range from people who have a very introductory level of apologetics to people who are very well versed in apologetics and so uh don't feel uh, as though the answers to the questions need to be overly simplistic, uh, we can go into the kind of introductory material and kind of if you want to go a little deeper into some of those related topics, uh, we most definitely um, can. I actually created a Facebook page called Calvinism versus Molinism, a, a respectful dialogue, and a lot of people, we have some great um, discussions there. And I, I, if I understand correct, are you a Molinist as well? Yeah, so let me talk about that for a second. So, um, okay. Let me give you a real brief, and I promise it will be brief, sketch sure. of my apologetics history. So okay. in the mid-2000s—so my wife was a part of a bona fide cult of Christianity in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, but it was a nationwide wow. cult. Um, you wouldn't know it. It seemed like a harmless non-denominational church, but it ended up—we found out that they believed that the, uh, the pastor was like some kind of an incarnation of Jesus Christ and all kinds of weird stuff. And so— uh, in the midst of all that, I, I never believed in what is called missionary dating, you know, where you date someone with the intention that <laughs> yeah. they'll become a Christian. I yeah. thought that she was, and she seemed to have a gospel testimony. But right. uh, when she was in, but when I met her, she was already in this church and I didn't have answers. I didn't know how to clearly answer some of the objections, uh, you know, some of the stuff that their, their church was raising. And so I, that, that got me interested in apologetics. And then uh, while we were dating, my wife uh, truly was born again and um, and has been a, a wonderful, godly Christian wife and mother ever since and pastor's wife and everything else. But then later, one of my best friends from high school who was um, uh, who, who was raised in a very conservative Christian area. We went to a Christian school in Lebanon, Tennessee and Lebanon, Tennessee. Nobody knows it's a suburb of Nashville, but everything that Cracker Barrel and Lifeway Christian Bookstore sells goes through Lebanon, Tennessee. So you don't get more conservative Christian than Lebanon, Tennessee. Yeah. And uh, yet this friend became a um, 
uh, began to experience same-sex attraction. That led to a degradation in his faith, however soteriologically you want to frame that up. Um, and he today claims to be an atheist. And as a result of all of that, he was rattling my faith. And when I say rattling my faith, I don't mean that it rattled me personally that I was experiencing doubt, but it rattled me in the sense that I wanted to be able to give an answer that I didn't know how to give. I wanted to be able to say something I didn't know how to say. So apologetics helped me with that. And when I first got into it, it was Ken Ham and Kent Hovind and all the young earth creationists at the time. And I thought these guys were awesome. And, and, uh, and, and I just really dug in and still admire uh, the work that young earth creationists like them do. But then at some point they kept talking about these, uh, these guys like Norman Geisler and William Lane Craig and kind of denigrating their ministries. And so I, I thought I need to hear what these heretics have to say. So I started <laughs> listening to Norman Geisler and William Lane Craig. And uh, so I was a real Craig head, as I would say, a William Lane Craig fan for a while. And the Molinism made a lot of sense to me. So I, I began to study it and research it, read a little bit of Molina and, uh, uh, got into, you know, read William Lane Craig's The Only Wise God and some other uh, Molinist material and just finding it just fantastic. I mean, just just really loving everything I was reading. Ultimately, what happened to answer your question is a really long way around the bend to answer your question. But um, ultimately, what happened was when I started debating the issue of Calvinism, I don't know if you know this about me, I've had four debates on Calvinism, uh, friendly debates, but Calvinists are my brothers, you know, and all the uh, caveats I'm supposed to say, but truly they, they are. I, I love my Calvinist friends. And, um, but I was, I had Molinism kind of in my back pocket. And I think now looking back, the reason was I thought if a Calvinist in one of these debates ever got me with something where I just didn't have an answer, well, just sprinkle a little Molinism on it, you know, just, just, uh, use the Molinism. But so, and I wasn't disingenuous. I just, I sure. really believed Molinism. But ultimately, somewhere in the past few years, as I've moved away from the soteriology debates and having a desire to get to talk to real unbelievers again, I've been thinking about it. I don't need the Molinism anymore to answer any of the soteriological questions. None of the soteriological questions when I'm discussing with Calvinists, I, I don't really need the Molinism to answer those. Um, and in apologetics, the only place where it might come up is in a discussion about the problem of evil, um, right. an argument from evil, because I use, uh, and this is where maybe we are getting a little technical, but I use a, a free will theodicy, a free will answer, and combine sometimes if the, if the discussion gets pressed, I'll go into that. So where I am right now is I affirm middle knowledge. I believe in God's middle knowledge, uh, just for those that may not know, just the belief that God not only knows everything that has happened and everything that will happen, but also knows what would have happened under other circumstances. Um, I believe I believe that because I believe indirectly there's some scriptural support for that. But I don't think, number one, there's ever a place in the Bible where the Bible intends to teach that. Uh, I think it arises from the text. Uh, uh, and, and then secondly, I don't need it really for anything much anymore. So I'm kind of in this weird spot where Molinists don't like me because I'm like, yeah, I basically believe in a mere Molinism but it's right. uh, functionally not that important to anything I do. Right. Okay. Because that, that was going to be, uh, well, I wasn't going to ask it right away, but I'm glad you addressed it. Uh, because I know that some people use Molinism um, as kind of a, a kind of a link in the chain of their apologetics. Some, some people find Molinism useful 
um, and precisely the, the way you've just mentioned uh, as it relates to the problem of evil. So that was kind of a, a question that I, I was going to ask. But, but let's start right back from just the simple. So um, a simple question. Why does the church need apologetics? Well, because um, now I'm speaking more from a Western, you know, American evangelical 21st century perspective. I think that the for the 20th century, most of the 20th century, uh, we were a much more thoroughly Christianized culture. Now, I don't by sure. that mean, obviously, that everyone claims to be a Christian was a Christian. Right. But at least a lot of people would say if you ask them, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And maybe there's some godless atheist off in New York or somewhere, but uh, <laughs> but the fact is, for the most part, most people would affirm s s Christianity, and even if they were an atheist and and uh, identified as such, they would right. say, well, yeah, if there is a true religion, it's probably Christianity, you know. Right. So there wasn't so much of a need, uh, at least obviously so, in the 20th century, but I think as we've come into the 21st century, and primarily because of the internet. Um, I think that the world has gotten smaller. Uh, several years ago, I, I was asked to speak at a church outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, a place called Dixon. It's a small community. And the pastor said, I don't want you to do any of that apologetic stuff. We don't need that stuff here. I mean, we don't have people that we're a small town, a rural town. We don't. And then uh, three years later, he said, would you please come back and do some apologetics? Because we've got people into Mormonism and atheism and right. everything else. So I think now the Internet has made it so that the current state in America and certainly in Europe is much more like the first century world where you had all kinds of uh, religious perspectives. And you need you, the church needs to be aware of how to answer the questions that will be asked. They need to know how to give a reasoned response. Um, to those questions. And so, and, and I mean, everybody, you know, whenever sure. I do, I know I'm rambling here and I don't mean to, but like when That's I do okay. an apologetics conference, I know you do a lot of those. When I do breakout sessions, uh, often I see younger people there and not as many older people, but for the older people that do come, I say, listen, this is not just a young person's game and it's not just a men's game either. It's, right. it's older women need to know apologetics because they're going to have grandsons who right. are attracted to some false belief, and they're the first line of defense. So the church needs to be aware of these things. And right now, this is the last thing I'll say. Right now, I'm uh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a, I'm a southern. Hey, you don't have to apologize. You're doing great. <laughs> at heart, I'm a Southern Baptist evangelist, and so we get to say in closing three times before we actually. That's all right. I grew up Pentecostal, so I know all about that. Yeah, yeah that's right. So uh, you know, right now I'm working on a second doctorate at another school, and. It's a D-men. So my first dissertation had to do with evangelism and apologetics. This one has to do with discipleship and apologetics because I'm trying to figure out what does it take to get lay church people to not, who are not professional ministers to understand enough apologetics and have the confidence enough that they're willing to do it with other lay church people who are Christians right. so that those people don't slip away from the church. And right. so, um, so, yeah, I think everybody needs to know it. Because whether you realize it or not, it's going to be your family, it's going to be your neighbors, it's going to be your coworkers. Right. And I and again, when someone asks me why do we need apologetics, and I, I'm sure you would agree, um, is number one, the Bible commands it, as we know yeah. from First Peter three fifteen, Jude chapter one verse three, and other places. But what I love what you brought up there was the internet. I mean, people don't realize it, the internet connects the world in a way that just living in some town in the middle of nowhere, where you kind of, literally speaking, we're disconnected, but in, in the realm of technology, everyone's connected. And so you have that that kind of that constant flow of different ideas and things like that. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's really where a lot of this stuff uh, 
challenges people. You get all these different ideas from all over the place. So, sure. um, so yeah. So, uh, and the interesting thing too is we get a, a great diversity of different differing views. Now, taking it from that perspective, we have all of these different kinds of objections to the Christian faith coming from uh, universities, um, just the internet in general. Um, what kinds of questions or objections do you think are the most commonly raised against the Christian faith? And how might you respond to some of them? Well, you know, we're in a we're in a different situation now than 10 years ago. 10 years ago, as you know, if you watched a debate between an atheist and a Christian, two philosophy professors, for example, sure. um, you would get you would get uh, a range of different things, different uh, you know, arguments against God's existence. Well, now, as the definition of atheism, at least as it's popularly un popularly understood by atheists, has changed to this kind of lack of belief. Um, right. It's not a positive affirmation that God does not exist. It's a. It's. It's just a. I'm. I remain unconvinced. You know. Uh, what we're now? Would now you say? I apologize. Would you say the change? I mean, I know. I know. As you mentioned in the debate with Matt, that you allow the atheists to define their own terms and then argue on that basis. But do you think that the changing in the terms of uh, what atheism originally meant, which took the, the position that, there, that you know, there is no God, do you think the redefinition is a purposeful redefinition so as to shift the burden of proof in the discussion between atheism and theism? Exactly. Yes. Okay. I do think so that's you think it's not, an intentional, an intentional yeah. redefining. Somebody meant it intentionally. I right. think Matt Dillahunty means it intentionally. Sure. I, I, th I don't know that the everyday atheist who watches YouTube videos, but maybe, you know, isn't in some way engaging all the time. I, I don't think that they have necessarily put it together. Uh, some of them have, but yeah, I think it's intentional. But sure. why, don't you, why don't you unpack that for some people who might not know what we're talking about? Um, why don't you define uh, for people how atheism has normally been understood throughout history and how it's been redefined and how that kind of changes the, the dialogue. You want to explain in that yeah, real quick? Sure. So if, if someone were to pick up uh, the Encyclopedia of Philosophy or, or any any standard academic text on that gives you definitions for these terms, atheism is going to be defined, an atheist is going to be defined as basically someone who affirms that there is no God. And that's still true. They haven't gotten so far with this yet that they've changed the literature in any dramatic way. Sure. Uh, but the thing about that was that meant that if you were an atheist, you had a burden of proof. The Christian has a burden of proof. And what we mean by that is I fully accept that when I present the Christian worldview at, from a, as a classical apologist, when I present the evidence, I have the burden of proof to demonstrate that what I'm saying is reasonable to believe or should be believed um, because I'm making a positive claim. The Christian God does exist. If the atheist is making a claim too, the, the Christian God or God does not exist, well, then he now shoulders the burden of proof as well to show that, to show that God doesn't exist. And as you know, people try to do that with arguments right. from evil or something. But now if you just say, no, 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 I'm just unconvinced and I'm just going to cross my arms and you've got you've to present the evidence that will convince me. The, the idea is if I'm not making any positive claims as an atheist, well, then I don't, I don't have to prove anything. You're the right. only one claiming anything, right? Uh, so now they actually, I didn't bring this up in the debate, but there are, there is still an actually a, a burden of proof there because what you're saying is what someone like Matt Dillahunty is saying is, uh, the skeptical position is the proper position, right? Right. That's a positive claim, but that's kind of how that works. Okay. So it's a shift. So it's a shifting in other way. And, and from the position of saying, I don't have to argue for anything, then they're free to just reject everything you say. <laughs> yeah. So that what you, 
what you end up seeing is like in the debate we had um, is you got a Christian shoveling a bunch of information and, and evidence out here. And then right. the skeptics saying, well, that's not a demonstration. And that's what they want. That's what Dylan Hunty always says, a demonstration, which is right. ambiguous. That's not a demonstration. Oh, so you want certainty. Well, no, 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 I don't, I don't think we can have certainty. There's no such thing as certainty, right? They'll say, right. And then, and then you say, oh, so you just want a demonstration. Here's some more evidence. Well, no, that's not a demonstration either. Oh, you want certainty. No, you can't have certainty. And it's not a shifting of the goalpost. There simply is no goalpost. Right. And so and the, the interesting thing about demonstration, I'm glad you brought that up because on the one hand, he rejects certainty. On the other hand, he's asking for a demonstration. Uh, but a demonstration also presupposes a standard by which one can demonstrate and give a valid demonstration. Sure, yeah. I think when you asked him what would take, what would it take for him to be convinced that God exists, uh, he doesn't even know. <laughs> so right. demonstrate something to me, but I have no idea how you might do that. So I can't give you a standard. I can just well, sit back and say you haven't demonstrated. That's right. And and he's going to say that no matter what I say, because as we saw in the debate where I quoted Matt Slick. Right. Uh, I said, I said, what if the ocean parted in Jesus name? Would you believe then? No. What if it was written on the moon? No. And then he won up to me and said from his debate with Mike Lycona, he said, Lycona asked me, what if somebody got their head cut off and without human involvement, it reattached. And they began to tell me about a relation, a, a, a conversation with a person that I knew and had a private conversation with who was now dead. And they could come back and tell me about that. No, I wouldn't believe. Okay, what you're telling me is you have an epistemology where there simply is nothing uh, right. that would convince you. And uh, it's enough to make a presuppositionalist out of someone because it shows you <laughs> it shows you that <laughs> that's they, what I was my my faith <laughs> my faith in presuppositionalism was strengthened uh, right. because of but you know what but but to be fair I, I think even as a classicalist you would affirm that in in a very in a very profound way all men do know God exists. We might just differ as to how we bring that out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we definitely see a suppression in tr of truth um, in that regard, which I thought you brought out um, beautifully, especially in the Lycona debate. I personally thought that um, Dillahunty got the best of Lycona. I wasn't very, and I, and I like Lycona stuff. I, I just don't think that was his strongest um, debate. But I think in your debate, you brought out really the irrationality of such a skeptical uh, position where you well, really I have to affirm anything, you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I know we've gotten far afield from your question about the, the biggest arguments and the best. Oh, yes. Arguments. Yeah, yeah. But, so but, so let, let's re, let's rephrase it. Okay. So people so that people lost track. What are the most common objections uh, against the Christian faith that you hear? And how might you offer some brief little responses, maybe some nuggets for people who are who are asking themselves, hey, I, I often hear this, that or the other thing. How might I begin to respond to something like that? OK, well, ever since Richard Dawkins presented this statement some years ago, over 10 years ago now, about the God of the Old Testament. They'll say mm -hmm. the God of the Old Testament is the most, I forget the terminology, but basically he's the worst of all figures in all of fiction, he says, because right. God's fictional, right? And he right, goes right. and says he's homophobic, he's racist, he's infanticidal, all these kind of things. Ever since that, and Dan Barker, well-known atheist, took that and ran with it and wrote a book on that, expounding on that, the idea that the Old Testament, particularly, although they'll say the New Testament too, but specifically sure. the Old Testament God and the slavery issues, the, the allegations from atheists that there's rape advocated for in the Old Testament, the genocide, all these kind of things, those are, that's a big one. That's a mm -hmm. big one. So let me list them real quick. There's that, sure. there's the divine hiddenness claim, the idea right. that if there is a God, we should see more evidence. Why doesn't he appear? Why doesn't he give me a vision? Why doesn't he show up at, in DC and give a speech on the mall or something? 
you know, that's, you know, and then the problem of evil is still a popular, the arguments from evil right. that atheists will bring, specifically a, a certain kind of argument from evil. Those three, I think, are the big ones besides I don't know and you don't know either, that kind right. of thing. So um, if you want, I can give a simple explanation of each of those. Um, well, well, how about this? So okay. say I'm a non-Christian. Let's yeah. do a little, let's do a little role playing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, how can I, how can I trust your, your Bible? I mean, it's your Bible gives me a picture of an immoral God who approves of rape and slavery. Explain yourself, Mr. Christian, go for yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say, well, now, uh, thank you for asking. That's a wonderful question. Uh, there are two things. Butter me up first, yeah. right? So that I, I always say that. I always say that. Uh, you know, somebody in the debate asked one of the most trivial questions to anyone who's familiar with this, which is who made God? And I was like, that's a great question. Thank you for that. <laughs> you got to do that. But uh, yes. so so I heard two questions there. I heard one, how can I trust scripture in general? And then I heard two, uh, what about this bad stuff in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the how do I trust scripture in general? Now, you're going to answer that different than I will as a presupposition, as you're sure. a presuppositionalist. But I would say, look, if, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, then the biggest claim in the Gospels is true right? We, we can at least say the biggest miracle claim in the Gospels is true. So if we can trust the Gospels on the biggest claim they make, the resurrection of Jesus, then we don't have a real good reason to question the lesser stuff. Well, if we can trust the Gospels, then we can trust Acts, uh, because Luke was one of the Gospel writers, and he wrote Acts, no matter who you think Luke was. Um, if we can trust Luke about Acts, uh, the uh, central figure of the second half of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul, and he wrote uh, a bunch of the other letters in the New Testament, and then the other characters are either telling you stuff, like in Jude's case, that is affirmed already in other letters, or um, it's written by someone who is affirmed in those Gospels. Uh, so so I think the, the point is, if you believe in the resurrection, then if we can show that the resurrection is true, then it's reasonable to believe that the New Testament is generally reliable, Okay. Um, and then, of course, if you can believe that the Gospels are generally reliable, Jesus says, Jesus affirms the totality of the Old Testament, so you get it too. So what I love about this is it doesn't give you, it doesn't give absolute certainty with someone at this point in the game, but what it does is it, sh it, it shows that the central claim of the Christian faith and the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith is mm -hmm. also the centerpiece of a good explanation of why we can trust the Bible in general, not, it doesn't get you inerrancy or anything like that. But in general, we can trust this. So I would, because see, my focus is evangelism primarily. Sure. So I'm trying to get people to the point where they place their faith in Christ. And some of this other stuff, I think, comes along with that uh, or comes along in discussions uh, subsequent okay. to that. So uh, that's, that's the first. The real question you wanted to ask is, what about this bad stuff in the Old Testament? And what I would say here, and here's where I think you and I would argue similarly, is I would say, look, you need to understand three things. One you're asking us to do an internal critique of Christianity, including mm -hmm. Old Testament stuff. So you, so what you've got to do is you've got to put on all the clothes of my worldview for us to have this discussion together. So we're assuming that there is a God, that this God really is leading Israel and all these things to then evaluate what happens. Um, and, and Sound so like that, Greg Bonson. This is great. Go, keep yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I mean, we are. We're, we're testing sure, out the sure. presupposition, right? And then secondly... Uh, you need to understand that God is not just a God uh, of judgment, uh, of justice. He's a God of love, but then he also is a God of justice. When you put all three of these things together, I think you get something incredible. So take, for example, the, the uh, genocide, as people want to phrase it, of the Canaanites. 
We know from Genesis chapter 15 and other passages that God in his mercy and love toward even the Canaanites who were child sacrificing, incestuous warmongers, they were ripe for judgment even then. But God gave them over 400 years to repent and to trust him. And so he's such a loving God that he gave them all that time to repent. They still didn't repent. And so what I say to people is I say, look, if you have Adolf Hitler out here and we catch Adolf Hitler, should should we just kind of give him a hug and say, look, we love you. You just go on and, and just don't do it anymore, right? No, there needs to be justice. And if there right. isn't justice, then something bad has been done. It's good mm -hmm. to bring justice to such a person. And in the same way, justice had to be brought uh, to these Canaanites. And so God brought justice after mercifully giving them all this chance. So if you plug in the love and the justice, I think you get an explanation of that. Now, there are details about what about children, what about, you know, we could talk about that. But generally speaking, I think that's the trail you want to go down. Um, and, and with the slavery thing, um, I, now, this is where a lot of people don't go as far as I do. We just released a podcast that's up now, um, just before Trinity, got, Trinity broadcast, uh, podcast, yeah, Trinity, Trinity radio. You right. can go to youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter, right. which I love, that. by the way, I, yeah, uh, again, yeah. Coming from a Calvinist perspective, your podcast is one of my favorite. It's up well, thank there you. Thank because you. you got the dynamic between you and um, Dr. Pritchett is very interesting and fun to listen to. And um, you guys cover a lot of material. So anyone who's listening, definitely check out um, uh, their podcast. Yeah, thank you. And we have a lot of Calvinist listeners. Um, and uh, so so we released an episode just before I got on this with you right now on slavery so really i would just point people to that and say listen to that because we go into all the details and it's part one of a two-part thing on slavery but basically i know this is uh sounds audacious to our unbelieving friends i don't think that that we have israelite slavery except when they do it um in abuse of the law i think what we have is servanthood in israel and we go into all the reasons for that i don't think it's anything i think if you applied the mosaic law to to true slavery any time in history, right up until recent history, and even today where slavery is still happening, I think it goes away if you apply the Mosaic Law. And so you're saying in the in the in is in ancient Israel there was no slavery. It wouldn't have been understood as slavery the way we understand it. It would have been more of like an indentured servanthood kind of thing. Well, I mean, there's a few things. One, it's entered into voluntarily. Uh, now, people right. want to bifurcate between Israelites and people from other lands who is who who were servants in Israel. I don't use the term slave. The, the term is ebed for a man and amah for a woman. Mm -hmm. And that those phrases are flexible enough that it's slavery when it comes to Egyptian bondage. You were in slavery, but then you're also also we have the same words used for just servants who are in no wise considered slaves. So right. you have to make a decision um, to, as to how that should be translated. And so you got to ask yourself, despite the fact that my Bible says slave in most English translations, though not all, how should it be translated? I'm saying it should be translated servant. And one of the reasons is you have to let them go after six years. <laughs> I mean, how, I, I don't want to trivialize this at all, but how many people with student loans into their 50s would love <laughs> to be able to work for the university? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, right. you, you'd love to go work for Liberty University for six years and then all your debt's gone, right? Yes, we're done. Yeah, so, so there is that. Uh, also, people like to say, well, you can beat your, your slave as long as you don't kill it, you know, Hold on. Uh, the Bible never says that. It's in Exodus 21, verse 20 and following, where it talks about if you beat a servant and uh, they die, 
then you're to be punished. And the word there is nakam in Hebrew. It means death penalty. You're mm-hmm. to be killed if you kill a servant. If you so much as knock their tooth out, you have to let them go free. But it's not saying that so long as you don't do those things, it's okay. It's saying, don't do this. There are consequences for this. Right. In fact, right, just right. two verses prior, it's describing two non-servants, just two normal Israelite dudes. If you get in a fight, there's consequences, and they're the same consequences. So a lot right. of these things, just watch. I would just encourage people to watch the podcast. A lot of that stuff goes away. Uh, I agree with Paul Copan, who says about this that um, uh, Israelite servanthood wasn't experientially altogether different than uh, an employer-employee relationship in a cash mm-hmm. society. And I know, I know how that sounds to people. But if you're the kind of person, skeptic, listening, who would say, see, these guys are trying to rationalize slavery and it's so evil that they're trying to uh, prop up the slavery. No, we're saying it's not slavery. If I was saying it's slavery and it's okay, that would be a problem. Right. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting when people accuse Christians of trying to rationalize things. You're asking a question, you're making an objection that requires some background information. So we're not going to give you just a willy-nilly answer because that's not going to be good enough for you. But then you actually, they actually evince their, their really... In reality, they don't want a response to your question since when you go into the background material, they don't want to hear it because it requires, you know, um, you know, a little bit of knowledge of the ancient Near East and the culture and things like that. And apparently you're not allowed to include that in your explanations because it looks like you're sidestepping the question, <laughs> which I think is right. very right, interesting, right. Uh, very interesting way of coming at it. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, so what about what about this idea of um, this always comes up? You know, if a man uh, rapes a woman, he has to marry her. How could a God command this in the Old Testament? And if he's a loving God, look how loving he is. Poor lady has to rape. I'm sorry, poor lady has to rape. Poor lady has to marry uh, the man who raped her. How would you respond to something like that? Yeah, well, I would take him to the passage, and I'm trying to bring it up on my computer right now. Okay. Um, but it's Deuteronomy 22-ish. I have it in my notebook. Um, but I'll just explain it. People can sure. see, go te- check it out and see if I'm right. But... Um, what you have is you have uh, where, where that section is where, with what you're describing is there are three categories described. OK, now you may not like this, but not liking it doesn't mean it's rape. OK, right. You may disagree culturally, but that doesn't mean it's rape. In all in, in each case, what I'm going to argue is the point is to protect the woman and make sure rape didn't happen. OK, mm-hmm. so the first case describes it gives you three hypotheticals. One example is if you're in the city, and remember, a city is not like this was written to a tent-based society, right? So this is right. not this not is like, not like yeah, this is not like drywall and and you know where nobody in the room next to you could hear. This is tents, and if you're in tents, or if you're even in even when they had Jerusalem later uh, as an established city, you still didn't have like windows with glass and all that. If if there's uh if, if there's a claim of rape. And some and the woman didn't cry out, then uh, then, you know, there's it's questionable. Right. So that may sound horrible because you think, well, yeah, but he could have manipulated her and all that. I know. And this is where I'm saying disagreeing with it culturally. I feel you. But that doesn't mean that we're talking that that the Bible's advocating for rape. Right. The idea is if she cries out, someone's going to hear because everybody's living close and we don't have windows and all that kind of stuff. So um, so in that case. Okay, it's questionable. In the second case, if they're in a field, uh, the woman is given the benefit of the doubt and it's considered rape because if she had cried out, there was no one there to hear her, right? Mm -hmm. So, and in the third case, and this is the one you raised, 
in the third case, we're in a field and it says something like they are discovered. Okay. Now they're both held accountable. Now that's the one where it says, so he's got to, there's all this deal about, he's got to marry her and, and everything else. Okay. The claim is this guy raped this woman and now she's forced to marry her rapist. No, no, that's not what's going on. What's going on is they're in a field and they are discovered. It strongly implies that what's being said there is they were kind of doing this together. Now it says, it does say something like he catches her where in the previous hypothetical, it says he forces her. It's different mm -hmm. Hebrew words. Okay. So in the first case, it's clearly rape. She's in the field. He forces her. There's no one there to hear her screams. That's right. In the second case, he catches her. It's it's very much considered by some Old Testament scholars to be seduction language. You know, right. yeah, he did. He seduced her and all that, but she was complicit. This was consensual. And if you don't think so, how do you pair that with the previous hypothetical from just the verse before that is talking about a rape? It doesn't work. So that is the least charitable reading of this. Now, understand something. In all three of these cases that the Bible gives us in this in this law, in all three of the cases, the man is guilty. And what we're trying to determine is the woman's innocence. So this is all built to give the woman the benefit of the doubt in an alleged rape situation. Okay. Oh, well, very good. Yeah. You passed the test. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but, but, that's, but that's good. Just to point out to people who are listening, this is why it's important. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15, for, for example, when it talks about always being ready. Part of always being ready is always studying up on these important issues, knowing the scripture, knowing the background, and being familiar with things just like you've just explained. Because if someone didn't know the backgrounds uh, and the context of those particular laws, I mean, how do you answer the question? It kind of, you know, especially when in the course of a discussion with someone, these accusations are thrown out and it's summarized by the unbeliever. This is the objection. Look, your Bible says this. When in fact, that's not exactly what the Bible says. You need to take a closer look. So I think that's um, the way you answered kind of highlights the importance of knowing the background context yeah. of the various yeah. uh, passages we're discussing. Yeah. And just real quick, I would say I, I did pull it up. It's Deuteronomy chapter 22. I thought it was. Okay. Verses 23 through 29 is where the yeah. three uh, cases are given there. So, yeah. All right, Mr. Hunter or Dr. Hunter, I apologize. Um, what about the com? I mean, this, this, I've, I hear this so many times. Uh, and you, of course, you only hear it on the internet. It just pops up over and over and over again. And it is, it is usually brought up with such cockiness. And so, ah, uh, you Christians, clearly you don't understand that the entire Bible was really just borrowed from, you know, ancient myths or ancient pagan religions, the mystery religions, he borrowed from Egypt and Sumerian. You guys don't know where your own Bible comes from. How would you begin to respond to the accusation that the Bible is just a rehash of, you know, common myths of, of those days and things like that? And I know that's a broad question because you can make an emphasis of the New Testament and the accusation there that say the story of Jesus was borrowed from the mystery religions. And then you can go into the Old Testament and talk about how the Old Testament stories are borrowed from maybe ancient Egypt and things like that. How would you address that issue? Yeah, well, first of all, I would point out that it's a moot issue as far as I'm concerned, because let's take Jesus, for example. You could use it with any of the Old Testament stories as well. Sure. Let's say that there was a guy named Jesus who lived 10 years, who died 10 years before Jesus was born, and he had the 12 disciples and all, all of these things were similar. Does that prove that, that the real Jesus 
wasn't the real Jesus, right? Does it, does no. it prove that this really didn't happen? No, similarities don't show that. And I, I bet you've heard this before, but one of my favorites is there's this uh, novella that was written uh, 14 years before the Titanic, right? I don't know if you've heard this thing. That 14 years before the Titanic sunk, uh, or and, and long before it was even conceptualized, there okay. was a novel, a fictional story written about a ship called the Titan. And this Titan went down in the in the story it was said to be unsinkable and if you look at there's a wikipedia article that gives all the details they went down in precisely the same spot like almost the same mile nautical mile from the same location in in the ocean uh it split in two it had almost the same number of lifeboats everything was almost the same and 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 in fact people thought when the when the titanic sank that the guy who wrote that novel was like some kind of a you know uh, you know uh, some kind of a you know guy who had ability to predict you know pro, uh, predictive abilities or something is a problem sure. um but it wasn't it was just that's what happened right <laughs> there's a similar thing with uh, a plane flying into the empire state building and a lot of the details match seem to match the twin towers right okay. so the you know these things it can be very similar and it can still be true so on the face of it it's not a good objection Right. Uh, and so secondly, I would just say, um, you know, the fact that there are similarities in other stories, uh, I, I question the, the degree of accuracy in these other stories. Usually right. when you look under the hood, they're not the same. Uh, there, there are substantial differences. A God had actual sexual intercourse with a woman or something. When you get a quote unquote virgin birth, right. Uh, right. you take like Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, his, um, mother, uh, uh, had a dream where she was impregnated and this was a woman who had been having sex, you know, so women right, having right. sex tend to get pregnant. It happens all the time. Right. So <laughs> it so, doesn't even need demonstration. There we go. We right. just know it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, so, that, so I think that number one, similar stories doesn't show anything. Number two, these things are often not nearly as similar as they're made out to be. And, uh, sometimes stories like, uh, uh, when you look at like the Epic of Gilgamesh and you see a flood story that seems similar and all these kind of things that actually kind of testifies to the truth that it seems like there was a flood like this. You know? Right. And I think, I think a lot of people make the mistake that say, for example, the Epic of Gilgamesh is earlier than the account in Genesis. And so therefore, again, this is, this is the ironclad logic you have, right? People will say, I won't believe in God unless you demonstrate it. You need this kind of this, this, you know, perfect, uh, standard of demonstration, yet people make this argument that the Epic of Gilgamesh was written before the Genesis account, and so therefore the Genesis account borrows from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which right. that doesn't logically follow at all. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Now you pass the test. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So good. All right. So 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 uh, we can point out that logical issue that just because something similar or comes before doesn't logically follow that. Um, yeah. It's the so that, what answer. Right, the so, so what. what, and and the so what answer is very helpful because it doesn't require too much talking. It's the yeah. so what question is actually a valid question. <laughs> what they said, so right, uh, right. great. Okay, all right. Um, so what about what about this idea of history being um, really unknowable in any objective sense? I know in in one of the chapters in Reasonable Faith, um, I think it's Reasonable Faith, where Doctor Craig has a whole chapter on 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 the question of whether history is knowable. What do we do when we confront people who kind of come at these issues from that angle that really what happened 2000 years ago, we really can't be sure 
um, you know, if these things actually happen because history is ambiguous, we could never be certain about these things. How would you go about addressing something like that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would just say in the debate, I said it was kind of like the film Bird Box. You know, I don't know yeah. if a lot of people know what that is, but the Sandra Bullock film where uh, a zombie like death plague is is caught by you looking at someone who has it. Right. Um, so everybody runs around with blindfolds. And I was like, right. that's what that's what people like that are doing with history. It's like they have to wear a blindfold because they're afraid that they'll catch, you know, Christianity or something if they look at history too much. <laughs> uh, but, it is it is contagious. I'm not going to lie. But that's right. So uh, uh, but no, I mean, what is, is ridiculous? None of none of them believe that to to the ultimate degree, like they believe they can know what happened yesterday. They believe they can know what happened before they were born to some degree. These people don't seem to doubt that there was an Abraham Lincoln or something. So it seems to be that the further back in history we go, they start getting more and more skeptical. And uh, they don't get, they don't reach the ultimate of skepticism until it gets to Jesus. Jesus is apparently the moment at which we can't know anything, which is really strange. Right. Um, but I would just say, well, okay, I'm going to present you a historical case and you tell me what the problem is. Because here's the thing. There's this claim a lot of times. So let's let's put this where we're talking about with the resurrection. There's this claim a lot of times by people that uh, that we don't know who wrote these documents. All we have is copies of copies of manuscripts of translations of copies. And we don't know who wrote these gospels, for example. Um, and we don't have any idea and, the, and we don't know when they were written or who wrote them. OK, and we don't have access to the eyewitnesses. Now, is that true? What's not true that we don't have any idea. It is true we don't have access to the eyewitnesses, if by that we mean we, they're sitting in front of us where we can question right. them. But do we have eyewitness testimony? And, and th this is the kind of stuff that I was hoping would come up in the Dillahunty debate, but he abandoned any attempt to talk about the resurrection early on. And I asked him, are you going to deal with this stuff? And he's like, so are you going to bring a, a, a competing hypothesis? No, I, that's correct. I'm not. Okay, well, this debate is: Does the Christian God exist? You know, right? And you're abandoning this resurrection attempt. But so, what do we know? Well, it might surprise you to know, and this isn't really written down anywhere. I got this from Mike Lycona, and part of it I know okay. he got from Craig Keener and others. This is just kind of stuff you have to read journal articles and count scholars to know. But a slight majority of scholars believe that um, some someone that, that someone named Mark wrote Mark and was giving you the eyewitness testimony of Peter as Mark remembered it. Okay. Right. That's pretty good. A slight majority believe that someone who is a traveling companion of Paul um, and who had access to other disciples of Jesus, specifically the women followers of Jesus wrote Luke, which to me, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and you know, it's a Luke, right? So, sure. um, and then, uh, and then with John, the John is the gospel that most skeptics make fun of the most because it's supposed to be the latest, but a slight majority of scholars believe that someone who was a lesser known disciple of Jesus or someone giving you the direct eyewitness testimony of a lesser known disciple of Jesus wrote John. And of that slight majority, many of them believe, or some of them believe anyway, that it was John, son of Zebedee, right? So you've right. got, so, so now the only gospel you'll notice I left out was Matthew. The, a slight majority, a majority of scholars do not believe Matthew wrote Matthew. But Papias, writing toward the end of the first century, 
who was living just down the road in Turkey in higher Aptist. I was there last fall. That's sounds snooty. How much longer am I going to be able to say last fall I was in Turkey and I visited higher Aptist, you know, uh, he was living just down the road from John the elder and Aristius, two disciples of Jesus living during his day. And Papias claimed that Matthew wrote something that was probably Matthew. So, uh, we, so true that we have no idea who wrote these things. No, that's false. Um, we have then, some idea we, and some evidence to back up those ideas that we have. Right. Right. And do we know who the eyewitnesses were? I think we know who the eyewitnesses were because I would just point people to Mike Lycona's work on uh, uh, why the difference in the Gospels. It's an Oxford published book where he takes Plutarch, who was a contemporary writer, who was a biographer. There's something like 90 biographies from, from that period. Uh, and I think 50 of them were written by Plutarch. Not yeah. all of them have survived. But from that, we can get what were the literary conventions people wrote in Greco-Roman biography. And so when you look at the Gospels, they use them. And one of the ways they cited their sources is what's called the inclusio. And the inclusio is if you bookend a, either your Gospel or a pericope, a section of the text, a story, with a person's name, especially if that person is a lesser-known person who it doesn't really matter to mention their name. If they get their name, that's how they were citing their sources. So we do have eyewitness testimony. So a lot of these things that we blinded to history, that's just, no, you don't want to go where it goes. You want, you'd rather do bird box. Right. And so the, the, the tactic usually is to, is to adopt a, a kind of an irrational uh, historical agnosticism all of a sudden when it deals with these important issues. And then of course, wax eloquent when you're quoting from historical sources that you use to object against the Christian faith. Right. Which is very interesting. Yeah. Now, okay. So, so that, that's great. I think that's a good kind of sample as to how we might respond to some objections. Now, are you familiar with the terminology incarnational apologetics? Uh, I don't think so. Enlighten me. Yeah. Um, incarnational apologetics usually uh, is presenting a defense of the faith through the way we live, kind of in our flesh, so to speak. Okay. And uh, so it's really this issue of our lives being consistent with the word that we that we kind of present to unbelievers. Can you briefly explain to to folks the importance of the consistency of our actions and the consistency of our words? And that seems kind of an obvious point, but I um, mean, your even in your own experience, how has your your own way of life living for Christ influenced your apologetic, if it has at all? Yeah, two things I would say about that is, um, first of all, thank you for filling me in on that phrase, uh, incarnational apologetics. Sure. Uh, but uh, a couple of things I'd say, several years ago, I, I went for many years to the National Conference on Christian Apologetics in mm -hmm. Charlotte, North and one year, uh, Sean McDowell was going to speak, and they billed it as he's going to speak on uh, the greatest apologetic. And I took the bait. I was like, oh man, what's he gonna what's he gonna talk about? Is it some new manuscript evidence that we never saw before? Is there some right. new archaeological discovery? You know, what is it? Um, and what he did was he got up and he said, the greatest apologetic is love. And uh, because it is true, though it sounds cliche, that when people say people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, mm. that is true. That's a cliche because it's true. Um, and so loving people enough and living a life that models Jesus. You know, I was just saying today, um, when we were talking about slavery, uh, wh why didn't slavery just completely go away, not to bring it back to the slavery issue. But when slaves are told to, you know, be good, you know, be good in that context under Roman slavery, you know, um, the idea wasn't, I mean, the Bible tells us, hey, try to be free if you're a slave like that, right? Sure. But if you, you can't be free, 
you know, try to try to be the best image of Christ you can to that master, right? And the reason, and, and this is something I said, I don't think a lot of Christians believe this is like a radical understanding, I think, of the Christian faith, but I think we should expect to be defrauded in this life. I think we should expect for people to do us wrong and to walk all over us. And fortunately, uh, as Americans right now, we don't experience the level of, uh, we don't experience persecution, really. I mean, let's be honest. Someone shuts sure. down my YouTube channel. Oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, that was a good example. <laughs> but the thing about it is, um, I think if my family's in my home and someone breaks in and tries to do harm to my family, in such a case, I'm to protect my family to the best of my ability. And I personally would do that to the point of uh, killing someone if I had to, to protect my sure. family. Because the Bible teaches that a man is supposed to be that way, and he's worse than an infidel if he doesn't provide for and protect his family. On the other hand, if I'm home alone and someone busts in and they want to steal my television or something, I, I think I think I should help them move my television to their car. And uh, even if it's think, a flat screen, I mean, why don't you give them the old tube ones that you have upstairs or something? Man, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna, a flat I'm screen. Go I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm going to go further. I'll give them my Xbox. I mean, I'll, I'm willing to do what, whatever it takes. And here's the thing. I've even had Christians say, well, that's ridiculous. Come on, man. No, no, no. Come on. We're supposed to expect to be defrauded. And it doesn't mean I have to answer the door. But if somebody right. busts in, you know, the thing is, what a witness that while this guy is robbing me, I'm like, hey, do you need a, do you anything else? What else can I? You know, I mean, it's, it's just a cup of water. <laughs> right. I mean, that is a radical level of Christianity. And I think that's important. Lastly, I'll say on this, we had a guy that there was a family, just the church I was attending, a mother told me that her son had become an atheist, and but he was open to hearing from uh, someone who knew what they were talking about. And he had no knowledge of Christian evidences and apologetics and all this kind of stuff. And I think from your perspective and from mine, we'd say God was in some sense dealing with that guy that he was open to and genuinely open, you know? Um, and so... Uh, I, I wrote, the, I had him write a blog article after this whole experience uh, for my blog. People can go read it. It's called Away from Atheism. And Drew says this, quote, we met for lunch at a local Mexican restaurant. And by the way, I don't know why this is, but local Mexican restaurants are a great place for apologetics discussions. I don't know why that is just the the, the cheese and, and the sauces flowing that get, gets the defenses down, right? But um, he said, we met for lunch at the local Mexican restaurant, and that's when my life really changed for the better. We continued meeting and discussing God and the truth about Jesus. I was baffled at how much evidence there really is. No one had ever talked to me about Christian apologetics. It surprised me to hear that there were people out there that are trying to give evidence for God's existence and who Jesus was. Apologetics mm -hmm. made me take a second look at what religion was and why Christianity is worth believing. Now, aside from quibbling with his baby Christian terminology in a couple of spots there, the sure. fact of the matter is uh, that was key. The evidence really did, I believe, help him. I think the Holy Spirit used that, just like all of us believe, presuppositionalist or otherwise, that the Holy Spirit, that God uses means. And one Amen. of the means he uses yeah. is the preaching of the gospel. Even an evidential case can be the preaching of the gospel. It's just that instead of using statistics or illustrations or whatever, we're using evidence, but we're still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ if mm. we get to that resurrection. That's why I always go to the resurrection. Right. And I, I think that God used that to help him get over some intellectual roadblocks. Nevertheless, if I had not been a genuine Christian, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, but if I had not lived a life of love toward Drew, I don't believe Drew would have, would have seen what he needed to see. I mean, obviously God would have probably used somebody else. But the fact of the matter sure. is, he, 
I think that is important. So yes, obviously. Mm. Oh, great. That's good. And that's, that's the part that, that, that usually people leave out when they're doing apologetics. I mean, first Peter three fifteen, the ending part, uh, Defending the faith with gentleness and respect, we can oftentimes yeah. forget that part, um, which is very important. Uh, one more question, since we're we're running out of time, and I don't want to keep you. I know you have a busy schedule, but um, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it very briefly at the beginning as to why you kind of stepped back from apologetics, and I think this is hugely important, especially when people are getting into apologetics for the first time. People tend to um, spend more time reading books about God as opposed to reading the Word of God. And so uh, how can you speak to that from your own experience? Um, what's the danger of doing that? People seem to do it without a problem. You barely read your Bible, but you're reading systematic theologies and uh, history books and things like that. Um, why don't you share with us the importance of having uh, the balance in that area? Yeah, so, um, I, so one of the great things about the time we're living in right now is there is a golden age of apologetics resources on offer. Mm. The bookshelves are replete with apologetics materials. But unfortunately, and it's changing now, but for the most part, people weren't using apologetics for anything. They, they were using it for people like me and you, guys like us. We would use it for kind of entertainment. We'd never say that, but it was stimulation. We'd sit around on the back row of church after church on Sunday and talk about some new argument we heard, some new book we read, or some debate that we saw. But we wouldn't use it for anything, and we were geeks for apologetics, like some people are geeks for Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And so Star Wars. Yeah. Well, I, Hey, on both counts. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have read all the books that are no longer Canon now, but anyway, um, I, and then, and then people go home after church on Sunday and they'll argue on the internet and, and, uh, with uh, atheists, Muslims, other Christians, whoever gets in the line of fire. Right. And then after they've said some very angry things, they feel like they really did the Lord's work. And then they go back to watching Star Wars again. Right. I mean, mm. And they, it, you're not doing the Lord's work. You're a jerk. That's what's just happened. That's right. what's happened. And I had become a geek for apologetics. I don't think I was ever a jerk, but I had become a geek that way. And I was fixated on it. Some people get that way with uh, creation based sure. stuff. Some people get that way with spiritual gifts. Some people get that way with end times things. Some people get that way with soteriology. That personally was me for a long time. And I still think those things are important. The problem is when any one area of Christian doctrine becomes your entire focus and to the exclusion of everything else. And in my case, I sadly had started listening to philosophers more than I listened to scripture. I had started reading Christian apologetics books to the exclusion of scripture. Um, and I got really convicted about this. And so as a result, I began a three year long intensive study of the Bible uh, from beginning to end. And of course that still continues to this day, but um, I put all of the apologetic stuff on hold. I didn't listen to any debates. I didn't listen to any lectures. I didn't read any apologetics books. I just focused on the word. And I don't mean just me and my Bible in the old Oak tree. I mean, I, I used resources to better understand the word and read sure. commentaries, but uh, what that did that, that the Bible is so rich. I mean, I just, I wish, you know, so I think some of these atheists think, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I think some atheists love the philosophy discussion like I love the philosophy discussion. And they think if I become a Christian, I have to check my brain at the door and it's all just believe whatever the Bible says. Right. Well, it is believe what the Bible says, but there is a rich thing there. I mean, I love you and I could probably have fun discussions about soteriology from different perspectives. Sure. And what people like Matt Dillahoney want to paint out of that is, 
Yeah, so you guys aren't even in unity with each other. That's hogwash, man. We're in unity with each other. The thing is, Christians aren't one-dimensional. And we could have an enjoyable discussion uh, in theology, and we could probe these issues, and it's a rich uh, area of study to just understand the Bible. And the great thing about it is you have a real relationship with the God who wrote it and using human agents, but the God who wrote it and can go deep into that. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's right. an intellectual, it's a spiritual, it's an emotional exercise. And uh, what I came out the other, I think I came out the other side, a stronger apologist, because mm. last, lastly, I, I see these apologists, younger apologists, we're the school, our school, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, trinitysem.edu. <laughs> our, our school um, is very much the school for apologetics geeks who sure. may not even want to be professional ministers. But you know something, what I see often with them when they come into the programs is they know how to answer all these questions philosophically, but they don't know the Bible. Right. And that is such a travesty. You're defending something. You don't even know what it says. Right. And so I would encourage anyone who's fixated on apologetics or soteriology to do what I did, which is put it on hold for a bit and study the Bible. Yeah. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. That part right. goes before always being ready. So I think that's a great a great place to conclude. Um, I think we covered a wide variety of things, and that's uh, I think people will find it very helpful. Um, do you want to point anyone uh, to any of your books? I've, I've actually read um, your core facts, as I've mentioned before, which if anyone um, is, is you know desiring to be familiar with some of the classical arguments in a kind of cool and hip uh, acrostic, you know, uh, yeah. to, to helpful to, to memorize, uh, core facts is definitely a great book, but do you want to list a couple of other books that you've written that people might want to get their hands on? I think you're the first person who ever said that was cool and hip. I thought it was it, like, Hey, it is, man. There's a difference. I have listened to hours and hours and hours of William Lane Craig. And I love yeah. Dr. Craig. Don't agree with him and everything, but I love brilliant yeah. guy. I don't either. Yeah. And he, the way he goes, very systematic, and it can be very dry at times. Sometimes it's, it's super interesting. The way you've laid it out in your book, The Core Facts, is so easy to remember that it, yeah, it is kind of cool. You know, you don't have to be a scholar to memorize an acronym and use it in a discussion. So I do think that you did a great job in really simplifying something that, that can be very complicated. And that's really where what we need to be doing. You have the two levels of apologetics, which I'm sure there's that academic level, but we want to be able to bring that down to the everyday sure. person. So I think sure. you do that beautifully. Well, well, thank you. I love it when people say good things about me. Um, <laughs> but there's also, uh, I've tried to go, I'm on a quest to get uh, the everyday Christian to be interested in apologetics. Mm -hmm. And so I actually have also written a fiction series. Uh, it's kind of a... Um, Hunger Games type sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, there's two books out. There's only going to be three. They're all three written. The third one's not out yet, but it's called The Chronicles of the Adonai. And I would encourage people to check that out. You can just Google or just go to Amazon, type my name in, and you'll get all my books there. Uh, but I, if you want to learn apologetics in a way that is fun, hopefully, but I don't believe in edutainment where you're, you're, the story is merely there to teach you something. I believe in a good story. Sure. And I hope that's what I've crafted. But uh, you'll also learn some apologetic stuff in the midst of it. So I, I would encourage people to check out the Chronicles of the Adonai. If they do want a more academic treatment, uh, my book, Evangelistic Apologetics, goes into uh, more detail and is 
even though it touches on various apologetic methodologies, is very hospitable to a presuppositionalist approach. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's, is that is that on Kindle or is that only on the hard hard? Are all uh -huh. your books available on I Kindle see, as well? It sounds like you've already looked. Yeah, the uh, evangelistic apologetics is not available yet on Kindle. Oh. Uh, all my other books are. Um, I have eight books. All the other ones. Will, will are. it be? What's that? Will it be? Yeah. All the only reason it's not is laziness. I just I, I haven't <laughs> gone in there to set it up. But um, okay. But yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so so those those I would push you to. I, I would encourage people if since you're giving me the opportunity, um, sure. we're trying to get this YouTube channel that we have launched, and we've got tons of great video content there, uh, a lot of debates, a lot of other stuff, and our podcast is there. Uh, podcast is also available just in audio format. But but if you, it doesn't cost you anything. If you'd be willing to go subscribe to the YouTube channel, if you're a listener, that would be so helpful. We do notice. Um, when people do that, we've, we've been at it for a little while now and we have just over a thousand subscribers. We will feel it if you do that. And so I, I really, and yeah, you said, you mentioned Dr. Pritchett, my co-host on our podcast is a really snarky, curmudgeonly, somewhat <laughs> blunt. He says the thing that everyone wants you to say, right? <laughs> and then, and so, and then I'm the straight man who's like, now, now calm down, you know? So I, I hope people will enjoy that and check that out too. But I really do appreciate if you don't give me another chance to say it, I really do appreciate you having me on and uh, just the, the, uh, the good exchange. I really, I really value sure, that. Absolutely. If you're, if you're interested in the future, we'll set something, set something up uh, and kind of focus on a specific issue. Um, you know, if you're willing to do that, we'll set it up at a future time. Yeah. Sounds and great. I really appreciate just uh, you taking the time out of your busy schedule, man. And again, for those of you who have not yet watched his debate with Matt Dillahunty, watch it. It's really good. Great, a great example of uh, a good presentation that's logical, respectful, um, and uh, very informative. So once again, Braxton, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll keep in touch. Okay, brother? Bye, brother. All right. Take care. God bless. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can... Um, uh, Help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealed apologetics, paypal.me slash revealed apologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealed apologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless. Thank you.